When is the last time you played? <laughs> I, I feel like I have like two different types of play mm. where one is more kind of like doing something that's sort of in that flow state where you're like working on this sense of mastery and there's a little bit of a challenge there. And then the other is more just like this complete abandon where like outcomes don't matter. So the first one, uh, I feel like I do quite frequently. Just over the weekend, I was finishing up a, a bathroom vanity that I built. Oh. I was like installing the drawer for faces, and um, which feels in some way playful, but not in this like complete abandon. You know, there's a very clear goal that I'm trying to get to. Um, I think that uh, that second type of play is not what I'm that great at doing. Um, yeah, and so I don't even know when the last time I've done that. It's, yeah, I think I can safely say months. Welcome to Lead with a Dash of Play. Here we talk about the how and why of reclaiming playfulness as adults in order to build more connected, innovative, and human-centered workspaces. Isn't that what leadership is all about? I'm your host, Mary Hendra. Let's play. My guest today is Amy Clymer. Amy teaches teams and organizations how to increase their creativity so they can maximize innovation. Amy, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I think it's really interesting that you have that distinction in how you define play of that state of flow and that complete abandonment. And I think that may be part of why there's resistance to thinking about play at work is when people are thinking of play as abandonment. Mm. But that part of flow, your face lit up when you were talking about that vanity. And there's clearly such joy in creating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, when I think about, like, I'm pretty good, even though I have my own business, I'm pretty good about keeping kind of a Monday to Friday, nine to five-ish as like work time. And then the weekends yeah. and evening is is non-work time. But I find that even on weekends, like I'm doing stuff, I'm working towards projects and goals that have nothing to do with my business, but they're just like, <laughs> you know, oh, I want to <laughs> learn how to get good at woodworking. So that's what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And and I, I love like feeling that sense of flow and just being like, yeah. oh my gosh, three hours just passed. I thought it was only one. Yeah. <laughs> My husband laughs at me at how productive my playtime is, my downtime is. Why do you think it's important for people to have a regular practice of play or creativity or whatever we want to call it going forward, but that element of being able to create and be in that different kind of playful space? I think there are so many reasons. I think it really... I think it really feeds us our soul, you know, at a, at a mm. very personal level. But I also think, I, I, let me just back up a little bit and say, as you probably know, Mary, but maybe, your, maybe your listeners don't, I care a lot about creativity and innovation. That's the main thing that I do for work is that I teach yes. organizations and teams how to be innovative and creative. And 
that play is a place where we can experiment and try new things and test things out. And that is critical for creativity and innovation. And I, I think part of play is the unknown. Like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how right. this is going to work. And being able to get both in that mindset of being open to the unknown, I think is a critical piece of play as well as creativity. So I think yeah. there's that piece. But I also think that, you know, if you look at like the most creative people, like Nobel Prize winners or people who are just like doing astounding work in their field, many of them also have interests in other completely unrelated areas. Yes. Yeah, I was recently reading the book Range. David Epstein was talking about how nearly every Nobel Prize winner also had something, you know, a, a pretty serious hobby that was completely un unrelated, woodworking yeah. or painting or they were a musician. And I think we make those deep connections when we're able to play in different areas that aren't, you know, our profession. And my father was a nuclear physicist oh, wow. and he was friends with the Feynmans. So my first introduction to Richard Feynman was when we went to see the musical performance South Pacific and Richard Feynman was playing the drums. <laughs> so then when I started hearing his name in science classes and such, I was like, wait, that guy, he plays the drums. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> That's um, so funny. Here he is like this, you know, big physicist and yeah. that's a great yeah. example. For those who did not grow up with a nuclear physicist as a father, Richard Feynman was a Nobel Prize winning physicist and was involved in many high profile physics projects of his time, including space shuttles and development of the atomic bomb. And he also played bongo drums. In addition to coaching teams and individuals for creativity, Amy is a regular keynote speaker and MC. One of the people she includes in talks on leadership is Sir Ernest Shackleton. Now, if you look him up online, you'll see that he led an expedition whose ship became trapped in pack ice. That doesn't seem like the pinnacle of leadership, so I was curious to understand what leadership skills brought Shackleton to Amy's attention. It is a remarkable story. Um, I just will give a little context for those who don't know the story. So uh, Sir Ernest, well, he wasn't Sir at the time, but Ernest Shackleton got him in a group of 27 men plus him, so 28, and they sailed down to Antarctica with the intent to be the first to walk across the continent. Yeah. And before they made it to land, the ship got caught in ice and froze in place. And so they were kind of stuck there for the winter. Well, over the course of the winter, the ice shifted. And this is like, you know, ice that's like several feet thick. I mean, probably nothing you would see even in northern United States, maybe in Alaska. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so it was super thick. And eventually it it shifted like the ship fell over on its side and eventually sunk mm -hmm. and it was 1914 uh world war one was going on but they didn't actually even know that oh. um and there's no communication at all nobody has any idea that this has happened there's no radios there's nothing and so they're stuck out there and what's remarkable about the story is it, it took was it a year and a half or two years 
and every single person survived. And what was so interesting is that was a time period where many leaders accepted the fact that if you were an Arctic explorer, that somebody in the crew would die. And that was just like, yeah, of course, someone's going to die. This is dangerous. And he was like, oh, no, we're not having that. Yeah. And so he did a really interesting thing that at the, that the t- today seems very normal, but in 1914 wasn't, which is yeah. he was very intentional about having the men and helping facilitate them getting to know each other. I mean, huh. they're like living together for what ends up being, you know, a couple of years in these horrible, harsh conditions. And then there was a couple men who were probably, you could say, a little bit more difficult than others. And he was very intentional about ensuring that, like, if they were, for instance, like splitting up into three groups, he would put those men with him because he didn't want them to cause like rifts or issues with other, you know, other Mm -hmm. team members. He had this like open door policy, you know, that wasn't a thing back then, but he was very accessible. He talked to every single person probably every day. Yeah. Um, So the things that he did today, we look at as like, yeah, that's just good leadership. But at the time, no one else was doing that. So it's it's interesting because it is very relatable today. And I think maybe one of the coolest things right now is that they just found his ship in the bottom of the Antarctic Ocean sometime this year, 2022. Uh, I can't remember when. It, you know, it was 10,000 feet below the surface and they couldn't have found that any earlier because they didn't have the technology. Yeah. And because it was so cold, the ship is like almost perfectly preserved. <gasps> wow. It's amazing. Yeah. So it's, I think, uh, interesting. It'll be interesting to see what kind of research they do and what they find in there. Oh, so interesting. And interesting to think about how these elements of of connecting, of building a team, of getting to know each other, those qualities, you know, were what allowed them to survive something that would not have been expected at that time. Right? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing he did that I think is really critical for innovation is that he really used the team as like, well, how should we solve this problem? And yeah. you know, he didn't come in with the approach of like, I'm the leader, I know the most, but rather hey, I selected you all for your experience and brains and, and mindset. And, yeah. and so it was very collaborative, even though at the end of the day, you know, the decision rested with him, but he was very open to ideas. And I think that is critical today for leaders who want to be innovative. And yeah. I think it's a bit egotistical to think you're going to be the only one that comes up with the good ideas, you know? Yeah. Well, and that connects to one of the things that I've seen sometimes in relation to play, and that is that it can challenge the power dynamics in an organization. Are there things that you have seen in your facilitation around like that intersection between the power dynamics that might exist in an organization and the the shift required for innovation? Yeah, I I think what I have seen is that it can be really hard for some people to recognize that and to be open to the ideas. And and I think mostly what I see is that at the end of the day, it comes from a place of fear Mm -hmm. and fear of a few things. I think one is, you know, we most of us have seen situations where 
there's, you know, a moment where team members are brainstorming about something and then an idea gets thrown out and somebody says, oh no, we can't do that. We did that in 1985 and it was a complete disaster. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, gosh, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and generally that comment is coming from a place of, first of all, I, I would say good intention, even though it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it in the moment, that person is, has a fear that if I don't say something right now, we might implement that idea. And I know that it's not going to work. There is a power differential there, even if it's not coming from the, you know, leader, the, the labeled yeah. leader, it, it is a power differential. And generally if teams have a process where they're like, Hey, we're generating the ideas now. And then later we're going to evaluate them. And if everyone knows that and understands it, then that fear can kind of relax a little bit. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. There's going to be a time to evaluate the ideas. Yeah. So I think ultimately fear is the biggest barrier I see to being creative in teams. Mm. Mm. Um, I think it also can be fear of like, what's going to happen if my idea doesn't get used? Am I Mm. going to be looked at as not as good of a leader? Mm. Or, you know, so fear of like maybe being irrelevant or not as helpful yeah, or passed over. So kind of this jockeying for status can definitely get in the way. Yeah. That reminds me of the famous experiment with the kindergartners and, and MBA students trying to build with, with uh, spaghetti and marshmallows and, and how the kindergartners are often win because they're not worried about navigating status. They're, they're just building and talking and trying things and letting it fall apart and trying something else. Right. Whereas adults, we are, wait, who gave that idea and where do they sit in the organization and how will my idea be viewed? And should I talk first and then try and do something like there's a lot of extra stuff we're trying to navigate. Yeah. It's exhausting. It is. It is. I think too, there's also this fear, you know, thinking about the, the spaghetti towers with the marshmallow on top is, you know, I think in the world of an MBA and I don't have an MBA, but my understanding is that you're taught that there is a right answer and your job is to find the right answer. You know, case studies often are designed around that. And so you're building something as silly as a tower with spaghetti with a marshmallow on top. And the fear is like, are we going to get this right and the kindergartners yeah. aren't thinking about that. They're like, they're like, they're like let me edit marshmallows yeah. and spaghetti. <laughs> right? In your work with creativity, with building creativity, do you find there's a difference between fostering individual creativity and fostering team creativity? Yes. And they go hand in hand, right? Like I think um, team creativity is tough if there's not some individual creativity as well. Um, But there's these three elements of team creativity that I figured out through a research study that I did for my dissertation a few years ago. And I don't think those are, at least one of them in particular is not necessary for individual creativity, but here they are. So the first is teams need to have a clear sense of team purpose. So mm-hmm. like, what are we doing? Why are we a team? What's, yeah. what, are we, what are we striving for? Where I guess, you know, an individual, if they're trying to be creative, they might want to have some sense of purpose of what they're striving for. 
Um, the second is team dynamics and the mm -hmm. team members need to be able to communicate with each other well. They need to be able to engage in some healthy conflict. They need to trust each other. Whereas, you know, individual creativity, it's just you and yourself. So I guess you, know, you need to have some good dynamics with yourself, but that's a <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I need to remind myself that some good, healthy conflict with myself is actually okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. It's like the healthy conflict, not paying attention to your, you know, your inner critic. That's not. That's not <laughs> yes. um, and then the third element for team creativity is team creative process. And so mm -hmm. team members need to know and use a creative process. And most people don't even realize there is a process to be creative. And yeah. in that, that I do think is, is the same individual or uh, with a team, but of course with the team aspect, because there's multiple people with com, you know, and as humans were complex beings, there's a lot of that. It's just really hard. Yeah. So what is the role of leadership in relation to building creativity? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do think it's, first of all, it is important. It's critical. Like leaders do play a role in that. Um, I think the biggest thing is just being able to support it and mm. and being very explicit about that, like talking about it. Like, yes, we support yeah. creativity. We, export, we support the experiments and the testing and an idea comes to you and you say, huh, I don't know. Let's try that. How can yeah. we try that on a small scale? And just to do some little experiments to see if it would work. Yeah. Um, so I think that leaders need to be very explicit and clear about their support for creativity and thinking about, you know, how is the work environment structured in a way that supports this? Yeah. If you walk by someone's office and they're reading a book, do they get made fun of or chastised because they're not staring at their computer? Mm. Are they, if they're, you know, sitting off to a side at a table and they're doodling, is that acceptable for work? Or yeah. do you find that when people want to be creative, they tend to leave the building because they can't be creative there. So I think there's just yeah. like little things to pay attention to. Like how, what's the environment you're shaping as a leader and how yeah. does that show up? Oh, and I love those examples you gave of doodling, reading, taking a walk, I, you know, what other ways do you find that people create for themselves or their team, like a, a inspiration to be creative? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that inspiration is important. And the more I, the more I work with teams, the more I see that that is important. I think that we can sometimes get really caught up at work in implementation and, mm -hmm. you know, team meetings, um, you know, it's like, oh, wait, what, why are we having this su superfluous conversation that has nothing to do with anything when we need to get down to work? We need to get down to, you know, doing the important things and making progress. Yeah. And, and I think there's a balance because yes, please do some work, you know, make some progress. That's important. Yeah. But at the same time, is there some space in those team meetings for some divergences or connecting, you know, even just like a, an opening conversation where yeah. team members get to share a bit about themselves and get to know each other. And I think, um, I just, I just have to mention, you know, when I say anything about like an opening conversation, people quickly go to icebreakers and I am not a fan of traditional icebreakers in the sense of let's go around and everyone share their favorite color. It's like, yeah. I don't, 
I mean, I like you, Mary, but I don't really care about your favorite color. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm heartbroken. (laughs) I mean, that's not going to help me get to know you or help us work better together. Unless like, I don't know if we're doing a branding campaign where color is really important, then maybe we would have that conversation. But (laughs) You know, I come to think of it, I don't even know my mom's favorite color. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think what happens is that we get really frustrated with this, like uh, this stuff that doesn't seem that important. Yeah. When it's like, how can we have get to know each other on a deeper level and talk about things that really matter? Yeah. So I have to bring up here the climber cards that you've created because just last week I was facilitating a day with with a a group of teachers. So we integrated the climber cards in a few different places, including at the beginning where I just had people choose one that was resonating them for whatever reason that morning. And one person picked up a card that had a picture of a grocery bag. Mm -hmm. And, And it was because she had been so busy that she hadn't been able to get to the grocery store. Right? Um, and another one picked up a card with a giraffe because giraffe is his daughter's favorite animal. And so it was centering for him to start the day thinking about his young daughter. And it just was so quick, but it was very different than a favorite color. It, it I mean, it did feel like we connected in a different way. Yeah. People may not know what the climber cards are because we're not on video. So I would love if you would share a little bit more about them, why you created them, how you created them. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what they are first is just, it's a, it's a simple deck of cards. It looks like they're about the size of a playing card and there are 52 images and each of the images is a little watercolor painting that I did. They're kind of like kind of an iconic style, almost like a coloring page, very simple, bold, bright images. And the the way they use them and the purpose of them is is to get people connecting and and having richer conversations. And so generally what I do is I spread the cards out on a table and like, let's say it's the beginning of a team meeting and then you ask a question. And like, let's say that, this particular team meeting is going to be about budgets and it's a team that knows each other well. And they're kind of, you're trying to work through like, okay, how are we going to like set our budget for the next year? Then you could ask a question related to either money or budgets or this particular team. Like maybe you say, um, pick a card that represents how you feel like our last year's budget worked for us. Oh, And then now like, People are, and so then they pick a card and there's all sorts of images. Like you said, a grocery bag, a giraffe, there's a elephant, a sewing machine, um, a couple like abstract images. And, you know, then they're creating a metaphor or symbol without image and back to the question that was asked. And in this case, it's like a great way to, we're connecting with each other, but we're also connecting to the topic at hand. And so it feels very relevant to, you know, the conversation. So that's, that's a very specific way. You could also just use them as introductions if people don't know each other and like pick a card that represents something about you. You know, sometimes people are very literal. They'll pick the canoe and they'll say, I like canoeing. And then <laughs> other times people are more metaphoric, yeah. you know, and they pick something that, that has a, a deeper meaning. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that 
people say different things with the cards than they would without them. And yeah. with the images, they get more specific and they go deeper. It, it's almost like making that abstract concrete, literally, because you see an image. Yeah, exactly. And the images, there's a very kind of playful, whimsical style to them. Was that on purpose? It was, yeah. Um, when I created these, so it was back in 2011, 2012, um, I actually launched them up with a Kickstarter campaign in 2012. And at the time, I didn't come up with this concept. So there are other decks of cards out there. And the ones that I had seen were either photographs or clip art, basically like 1990s clip art. <laughs> you, know, you think of like old Microsoft Office. Um, and so I wanted something different. And actually, yeah. they started because I had just created a deck for myself that yeah. I was using. It, it was not as good as the current deck. I was doing it with like a team building program and a friend of mine saw me using them and said, Hey, Amy, these are really cool. Have you ever thought yeah. about doing something with them? And it's like, Oh, I hadn't no. but her yeah. comment just got me going and thinking like, Oh, maybe if I made these, you know, I had, I had to repaint all of them because they weren't that good. Yeah. Um, in fact, most of them I repainted like three or four times just to really oh. get them how I wanted. Yeah. Uh, which that in itself was a whole playful process. At the time I was actually getting my PhD and I didn't want the ex the experience of creating this or trying to create it to get in the way of either school or work. Mm. And so I told myself I would only work on it if I wasn't going to work on school or work during that time anyway. Yeah. And so I had this little sticky note on my TV and it said something like, don't watch TV, go paint. <laughs> Oh, everybody should have one of those. I know, right? <laughs> it worked. It was brilliant. I mean, sometimes I would just get 10 minutes in or anyway. And I mean, it took several months to, to finish them. But yeah, I wanted them to be like fun and playful. And what's happened, and I didn't, I kind of anticipated this, but not to the degree, is that the images feel really accessible to folks. Yeah. And so yeah. they've been used in over 40 countries, all seven continents, People yeah. tell me they're like, they're really, they work well cross-culturally, which, um, which I feel really good about. And I'm really excited about. For me, sometimes the act of individually looking at the cards and redrawing them for myself in a mm -hmm. sketchbook can be a really powerful way to uh, process what I'm, what I might be thinking. Oh yeah. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have this, another friend who she's definitely very creative. She's a professional speaker. And she carries them with her all the time in her bag. And she's told me that sometimes on planes, which she spends a lot of time on airplanes, um, she'll just, if she's stuck on a problem, she'll pull them out and she'll just like flip through the images and see, you know, does one of these help me figure out how to solve this problem? Yeah. And I love that. Could you leave our listeners with one invitation to play or be more creative at work? Sure. Yeah. If it's okay, I'd love to use the climber cards and my invitation would be to check them out climbercards.com um climber doesn't have a b in it so it's c l i m e r and they 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 are this deck of cards these, these images that like mary said they do invite the sense of play and using those or something else similar you know it doesn't have to be the same thing but something similar to invite 
some conversation at the open of a team meeting or just for yourself personally, you know, ask yourself a question that you've been grappling with and spread out the images and pick a card that represents that. And then you're just doing that personally, maybe do some journaling or even just some talking out loud quietly to yourself or, you know, in a team meeting and having, having team members share as a way to connect to whatever it is you're focused on, whatever you're talking about. I love it. Um, And And those are available virtual. They are. Yes. So if you are a virtual team, there is an app called virtual climber cards, not an app for your phone, but a web-based app. I do free trainings every month on how to use the virtual version. Um, Yeah. There's also a free ebook on the website on different activities you can play with. And maybe by the time this podcast is released, this episode, the climber cards two will be out, which is the second deck that I'm painting right now. I'm working on um, so after 10 years and many, many requests, I'm finally making another deck. <laughs> so do you have the post-it back on your TV? <laughs> I don't. You know what? I think I need to pull that out again. That's a really good point. Because <laughs> yeah, oh. actually the only way I'm going to get them done in time is if I don't watch as much TV. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Amy, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Lead with a Dash of Play podcast. Reza Zaidi and Joanna Stevens created and provided the beautifully playful and reflective music you hear in this podcast. The song is titled Holding Rain. This podcast was created out of curiosity, and I hope you'll share your thoughts and questions with me. Email me at mary at maryhendra.com or join the conversation on LinkedIn, redefining play and reclaiming this leadership skill for its potential to bring authenticity and joy into our professional spaces.